Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And every year we ask our audience, what is it that you are really interested in learning more about? Anxiety is always the number one request. Number two is depression. And number three is ADHD. And that is why I'm so unbelievably grateful to have a new team member joining us today, Dr. David Sett. He's the author of the highly anticipated book, ADHD Refocused, Bringing Clarity to the Chaos. Hi, Dr. Sett. It's so good to talk with you. Likewise, Sheila. I'm really excited to be here. Your podcast is well known, having uh, covered such great topics. I want to talk about your own ADHD as a kid. How did you know that you were struggling? So I didn't get my formal diagnosis until I was an older kid at 22 years old. Yeah. And I was the foot of graduate school. And at that time I was struggling. The requirements that were placed on me in graduate school were, and the demands were way more than I had ever had. And my resources and my ability to kind of like pull things off and and cope suddenly weren't enough. And I had a professor say, you need to get evaluated. And sure enough, I did. And I checked off every single box, maybe nearly 18 out of 18 symptoms of ADHD, and it was never on my radar. I was able to get by and slip under the radar, which I think for kids in the 80s and even in the 90s, that was the case. We, we, we weren't diagnosing as much and as well as we do now. Were you having all of the behavioral adjustments that are related to ADHD in terms of kind of acting out, class clowning, and inability to concentrate, that kind of thing? So I was less of a hyperactive child. I was not um, a troublemaker in, in class, but I was definitely a daydreamer. I was a doodler. I was a tapping my pen and shaking it until the person in front of me like elbowed me. And, you know, um, I was the kid who I couldn't sit still. Still, I remember I used to find an excuse. You couldn't get out of your chair more than once, right? To go to the bathroom one time. So I would take pieces of paper. I would pull them out. I would rip them up, crumple them, just to get up and walk and put them in the trash. And the teacher, you know, what could they tell you? I was throwing trash at. I would do it five times a class. I didn't know. I didn't realize that I was compensating and and finding ways. But I was more of the inattentive procrastinator, putting things off eight years old or 10 years old. And I was up till midnight doing my homework with my mom because I, I waited to the last minute. So once you were diagnosed, what kind of relief did it give you when you were finally either placed on medication or learned the tools that you're helping people learn today? The awareness was um, a flood of emotions. I remember very distinctly. Uh, the first wave was relief. I now under- I understand myself in the lens of this brain style. It's a diagnosis, and we call it a, a deficit, but I don't love those terms. To me, it's more yeah. of a brain style. And now I had this brain that I associated and affiliated with, and I felt relief. I also felt um, a bit of intimidation. Now I know I can explain what's up. I need to do something about it. I have a responsibility. I'm not lazy, crazy, or stupid, but I have this brain and I have to learn how to manage it well and how to optimize it. So there was pressure on me again in grad school having to figure that out. So it was a a mixture of, of emotions. And so how does your type of ADHD compare to the ways that other adults, when they finally realize what they've been struggling with their whole life, are the experiences very similar or can you have wildly different genres of ADHD? There's definitely a spectrum of experience and experiential ADHD that I find in my practice because I I do this day in, day out. I've worked with 
hundreds or thousands of, of, of adults by now. There is most definitely a, a spectrum of experience, but there is also a deep commonality of people who can relate to the struggles with procrastination, I'd say is really number one. It's the most common challenge that I hear among men and women, right? There are differences in men and women, but I hear the procrastination is a major one. The emotional dysregulation, the byproducts of guilt and shame mm. and anxiety and mm. depression that come with living with ADHD is so common among the adults that I treat and that mm. I coach. So, you know, there are some major commonalities, I'd say for short. Has the medical profile changed alarmingly since you were first diagnosed at 22 and what they're giving people today to help refocus the brain? Well, the diagnosis itself, I'll start with that briefly. When I was diagnosed, it was DSM-3 revision, revised edition, and the word adult was not mentioned in the DSM-3. Wow. It was only children. And so- you know, when I went to get evaluated, I went to a child psychologist. And when I was treated, they gave me like the children's. And that's why I said, whoa, whoa, there's a vacuum here. There's a totally. void. I'm going to be part of the community that fills that void, which I've done very grateful for being part of that ever since. And and so, but today the DSM does have an adult variation. We'll see him short changes in the DSM six when that eventually comes around. And then in terms of the treatment, most definitely there's been a lot of change in terms of the medications and in terms of the combinations of medications, in terms of the therapies that we can apply, the fact that CBT can be used, you know, cognitive behavior therapy. I'm a big believer in the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I yeah. use that for my clients. Yeah. meditation, mindfulness, and the executive function coaching world, there really has been a lot in the adult space, most definitely. There was nothing. There was an arid, dry land. And now we're starting to see a richness emerge and there's more to come. Okay. So when kids are diagnosed, it is generally Ritalin that they're prescribed, correct? I don't know that I'd say it's exactly Ritalin. It's typically a stimulant I'm not prescribing, but anecdotally, I can tell you, yes, stimulants, Ritalin class, or a Adderall class, they're in different classes, they're cousins, but in Adderall or long act, short acting, maybe long acting like a Vyvanse or a Ritalin and maybe, or, or a Concerta. And there are ever budding um, array of medications coming around as well. And so once you have an adult body, adult weight, adult size, does it change dramatically what you're prescribed? Interestingly enough, not necessarily. Again, uh, I'm not a prescriber to give yeah. you depth of knowledge in that area. But I can tell you again, um, you'd be surprised. People might start off on a 10 milligram uh, dosage of a stimulant, and that might be what they stay on as an adult. They might add a little bit more, but it's not the same uh, drastic jump as you see in other classes of medications. I myself went the opposite direction. I used to be on 50, even upwards to 70 milligrams of Vivance at one time for a brief, and then I was that 50. I'm now on five milligrams. Wow. And you're mostly um, just using the tools you're talking about? I'm a tool-based. I, I have a little bit of, I'm mostly skills, minimal pills, right? I'm more <laughs> skill, but it's still part of my toolkit. I still yeah. have the medication that I use as needed, but yeah. because of my tools and because of my program and you know all the, the, the methods that I speak about in my book, ADHD Refocused, I've been able to change my brain chemistry. For many people, um, I think that it's their loved ones who are like, you're driving me crazy. You can't keep track of this. What is wrong with you? Why didn't you know, you know, like, okay. So beyond the frustration that your partner is telling you about, what are some of the ways that adults say that their ADHD is manifesting? 
we oftentimes hear the manifestation of ADHD across domains, right? So the first domain that I very often hear about is in work or school, graduate school, where again, the procrastination, I put things off to the very last minute. I don't get started rowing until I see the precipice of the waterfall coming with the rocks. That's when I start. And that's very hard. I know it's there. I'm aware of it. I know what to do. I just don't do what I know. Mm. And so procrastination is big. Um, we also hear people paying the ADHD tax. What does that mean? People who put off paying my mortgage. So I got dinged with fee. I got um, a letter in the mail about uh, something that I had to take care of financially and I didn't. And you quote unquote pay the tax. Right. So people are paying the price because they, they put things off. They hit what I call the not now button. And they very often hit the not now procrastination button. And I, I hear that a lot. And in terms of communication with their partners. I asked you to remove the dishes from the dishwasher. You didn't do yeah. it yet. Oh, I'll get to it. An hour later, what about the dishes? So that oftentimes can can cause struggles. You know, I have heard people say that one of the difficulties is that living with a person with ADHD feels very much like they are trying to annoy you. They're trying to annoy you with the way that they keep their closets. They're trying to annoy you with the way they don't clear their breakfast dish. What is actually happening in a person's mind when they're not attending to those simple kind of follow-up tools like that? I appreciate the way you're couching that experience, Sheila. It's not that a person certainly is trying to annoy the other. We, we're well-intentioned in, in, our, in our living, in our being. We just struggle to... Um, bring awareness in the moment when the dopamine level, right, mm -hmm. for the normal person is a threshold, let's say of 20, I'm making this up, out of 100, a normal person, a neurotypical might need 20, hit a mark of 20 of dopamine to stimulate them to action. Whereas yeah. an ADHD individual, neuro, you know, atypical might need 40, 50, 60, 70 of that kind of level of stimulation to get them going. Mm -hmm. And so we're not ill-intentioned, we just are understimulated. And, and that doesn't mean that we can't get focused and stimulated. It just requires something that naturally, genuinely triggers our interest. Unfortunately, like social media or like that book that I would love or that video game or that project and work that I can get and dial down into for right. hours on end or the football game or, or, or that project, that art project that I have. If it triggers my interest, I'm in it. And that frustrates yeah. our partner because they, they know, wait a minute, you have the capacity. I see it. I see what you do all the time. But how come you can't bring that to me when I need it? Oh, that's so interesting because I have seen people who have like almost hyper focus when it's a project they really love that they can't, they won't get up from the chair. They will say, drill down for hours and hours and hours. But that's the classic misconception. What do you mean they have ADHD? I have seen them hyper focus. The, the reality is that ADHD, that is the upside, even though the upside has a downside, the upside of ADHD can be this hyper focus capacity. Yeah which wow. we sometimes like to call the, the, the superpower of ADHD. But again, there's a downside to that as well. And because it probably runs people ragged to have that type of energy, it doesn't become their lovely thing that they adore for that for very long. So I want to talk about these tools because I love your statement about how little you use meds only because like many people, I think they should be used as a screwdriver and not a jackhammer. Um, but I struggle to try to talk with people, especially with ADHD, about how effective tools can be. Why is it that one part of this argument has really run out that it needs to be medicated? Why has that so dominated this, this discussion? 
Well, the reality is that the medication is and can be for many people a very effective tool. And that's backed by the research. And let me split this conversation. Children and adolescents who don't yet have the cognitive capacity, the self-awareness capacity, the mindfulness ability to direct themselves and, and tap into that toolkit as effectively, the medication is quite important. While they're in the environment that's demanding constantly the, the sheer run of attention required is daunting. So the research strongly supports the use of medication along with therapies yeah, right, for children and adolescents. For adults, we find that that might be a good fit for some people. The medication and therapy can be very, very effective, but we see more in adults that they fall out of the medication, that it doesn't necessarily do what it did for them when they were younger, if they were yep. And they want more control. Mm-hmm. And so I do feel that I'm not against medication. I'm, I'm for it. I'm for people trying it out, but don't skip the skills just for the pills. Pills are necessary for you to act, control the change that you can try to create on a daily level. And also, hasn't there been a lot of research into how the body adapts and that you do need more and more of the same stimulant to be able to get the same dopamine reaction? Doesn't the body continue to sort of adapt to these higher amounts? There is evidence. It's not the case that people keep going up and up and up and up and up and up. People go up and up and up until typically they find their spot. Sweet spot. There's no such thing as a hundred milligrams of Adderall. It, it doesn't work. It, it, there's huh. a point of diminishing returns when it comes to stimulants. 20, 40, 60, 70 is like the high. And again, you know, consult your local prescriber, but it's not the type of thing where you shoot up and you keep going up. It is not like, it's not, it's not completely like that. Then Talk to me about what happens to kids who don't necessarily have ADHD, but who abuse Adderall in college to be able to cram and to be able to stay up all night long. Those kids do actually reach these limits where it's not working. Right. So when you're abusing Adderall and misusing it because your your brain is not like when I take Adderall, I don't get high. I don't get jacked up and I, I just get calm. Yeah. And focused. And Adderall likely could have that effect on the average brain of focus. But when when people use it like a drug, when they are taking excessive amounts of it because it keeps them awake. Yes. And it it does create a sense of stimulated focus and hyperfocus. It can venture into abuse land and you could end up um, going through withdrawal. You could end up using more and more and more to achieve the same level like you would coffee or caffeine. Or yeah. nicotine, which are all stimulants. They're in yeah. the same category of, of, of drug as these medications. So I want to talk about, you kind of laughed when you said, number one, anxiety, number two, depression, number three, ADHD, because they really are all related. Talk to me about the interplay between these three different type of diagnoses. Living with ADHD, I can speak it from my own experience and the countless clients um, that I've worked with and even in my own family, living with ADHD is is a grind. It is a grind. It is a, you wake up every day. The analogy that I use is that having ADHD is like akin to every day walking into a grand, like Madison Square Garden arena. And every day when you walk in, the lights are down. And I now have to spend time tweaking the light board. Put put this one up, turn that one on, lower this one, adjust the, and I have to put effort in every day. And now finally I got the lights up. They're great. Oh, let's get the show on the road. Let's go. And then the next day, the default is the lights shut back down mm. and I got to show up again and I got to get back into it. 
we are very hard to get into routines for the ADHD brain. And so it's a, it's effortful. Living with ADHD is effortful and it doesn't really dissipate. If I have an anxiety disorder, if I have um, a depression, I might go through a treatment, the depression might diminish and it could go in, into remission. And maybe it shows up again in, in a couple of months or a couple of years, or it may not. ADHD mm -hmm. not like that. It is mm -hmm. one of the unique conditions that it is, it's a brain style. It's with mm -hmm. us every single day and that's exhausting. And that can cause a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression because the environment that we're in is constantly giving us fluctuating reactions and responses. And that's difficult. So we, we oftentimes have bouts of depression. I go through it often. Bouts of anxiety. I experience that regularly. But knowing, and you need an astute clinician to realize that's the byproduct of one's maybe untreated ADHD, or even if someone's treated ADHD, but it's part of the flow. It's the wake of the ship is to have these experiences. So we need to address those as well. It's different than having comorbid separate entity totally. plus major depression, which is a standalone. There's two different experiences. I talk about it at length in, in ADHD Refocus. This is a good spot to wrap up the first half of our show with Dr. David Set. Next week, part two. Until then, thanks for listening and be well. If you get a chance to review us on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen, we'd sure appreciate it. Bye.